This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. We have a full house tonight. I am joined by Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. Hello. Good evening. Hi. Hello, Thomas, Alex and Cerise and Faith. Hello. (laughs) Let's mention everybody's not on mic. Uh, Before we go any further, we are still in the trail end of the Radiothon period. This is the pay-up period, so... You can still subscribe during this time. Um, you, as long as you get your subscriptions into us by Wednesday, the 20th of September by 5 p.m., you can go into the running for all the prizes that are, are on offer to people who subscribe, uh, including all the daily prizes. So so please do remember to call us on 93881027 during office hours or jump online, rrr.org.au. If you missed it two weeks ago, that's fine. You can, you, you've still got until the 20th of September. All right, let's get on with our show tonight. We're going to look at the new film by James Gray, The Lost City of Zed, and also the new film by Steven Soderbergh, Logan Lucky. But first, Killing Ground is a new Australian film and the feature film debut of writer-director Damien Power. Described by Power as part of a long tradition of Australian cinema exploring our sense of unease in our own backyard, Killing Ground is a film about two sets of campers in the Australian bush who are menaced by two local men. One group is a husband and wife with a teenage daughter and an infant son, and the other set are a young couple going away for New Year's Eve. The men who menace them are Chuck, played by actor Aaron Glenane, and German, I think it's pronounced. German. I just German. Just German. There you go. Yeah. Played by Aaron Peterson in a very different role to his character from Goldstone and Mystery Road. I can't remember the last time I've seen a film where I have such radically mixed feelings and opposing feelings. I'm very oh. curious to hear what you all think, because I'm the one least invested in the horror genre here. So I'd love to know what you make of Killing Ground before... Who knows, listening to you, I might make up my mind while I think about the film. Uh, you going camping again? <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, do you? Yeah. See, oh, I'm going to go I've camping never... as much as I've been camping in the yeah. last 20 years. Which is not much. Which is not at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thomas, you're always camping. <laughs> <laughs> my idea of camping is three-star accommodation, so that's uh, it just it just um, proved why I haven't gone camping. But well, What did we think? Because this is... Uh, I don't know why it's taken so long to get a theatrical release. It's over a year old. It, it screened at Sundance earlier this year. It was at MIFF last year Mm. Um, and it has seemed just a quick sort of random poll of reviews and people I've spoken to in person it has seemed to have really divided people so um, yeah let's get get into it who wants to start well I felt divided myself so I'll Mm. I'll begin why not Um, uh, because I saw this only a few hours ago it's very fresh and I thought this was this film was going to be different rather different to what it was uh, there's a couple of lovely red herrings early on in the film. One is a suggestion that the whole thing might be a little more invested in post-colonial uh, guilt than it, it, it turns out to be. That's still in the mix, but there's a real suggestion early on that this place where people are camping is the, it's the site of a massacre. Uh, uh, white folk massacred Indigenous folk there way back when. And that, that's just put out there and, and it floats throughout the whole film and, and you wonder, expect it to be an extremely loaded statement rather than just a slightly throwaway one. I don't want to dwell on that too much though because that could 
sort of lead to spoiler territory, but it's interesting. But then a lot about this film seems a little glib. A lot of the dialogue to me is, doesn't really work. But on the other hand, there's, there's quite a lot of tension ratcheted up, not least because there are two storylines which it takes a little while to meet and that's because there's a little bit of tricky play with time going on that the film is i think reasonably uh, adroit in not giving away too soon like i just have um <laughs> but what, what can i do i'm here to talk about a film in a in a critical sort of sense it's a bit difficult to talk about it without mentioning that it plays with these I timelines i don't think that's a spoiler really well no but it took a little while for, to, for that connection to become clear viewing it um, every yeah. single interview mm. that i've read with the director he's patting himself on the back quite aggressively about how clever he is with kind of the narrative you know, messing with chronology and stuff so mm. I don't think he's been particularly yeah. shy about it uh, uh, other other discussions of this film have been far more blatant than we have been so yeah. we were okay yeah. okay well I mean I, I'd already made my peace with that before blurting it <laughs> out I didn't even feel that blurty did you did you feel a bit I have to I didn't know whether it was me being an idiot but it took me a while to as you say work it out but I thought I went oh hang on what's going on here is this a mistake and then I was like oh yeah. I see yeah. is that me being stupid I don't know no, it was Quite possibly. Possibly both of us being a bit dim. Well, I don't think so. I think, yeah, we were just lulled into the the story and the setting as we were supposed to be. So I think, you know, kudos to the director there, probably accomplished what he intended to. Yeah, I, th- I think it's designed so you're not meant to pick up on it right yeah, away. I don't right. think yeah. so either. Yeah. Good. And the film, though, only really... It, it does. It is a slow burn. It does become quite chilling. There's the, a scene where... A smaller person suddenly moves in the back of shot as someone comes towards the camera, that which really very, gave very me the chilling. heebie-jeebies mm. in a big way. And I, I wonder how many takes that particular shot took, unless there was some trickery involved. But, yeah. And how did they get Peter Dinklage? That's what uh, I'm wondering as well. Yeah. Well, there were twins, apparently. Just, I think yeah. that's how it was done. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> spoiler. That's not a spoiler, folks. <laughs> or is it? Well, or is it? I don't think it is, because that went completely over my head. Cerise said a smaller person oh, in the I background. Oh, I see. Okay, let's see? move right. on. Let's okay. move on very quickly. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just one of those odd things. I, I pegged when the credit shot at the beginning that there were someone and someone, Riley, I think it was. What an odd credit. Yes, yeah. well, yes. Why would you do that if yeah. there were, say, relatives in a film? You, the, the, there's, you, there's an infant yeah. in this film, so yes. it's quite normal that often they're played by more than one yeah. baby. Yeah. yeah. Odd that they get, to, no, not quite top billing, but in the top billing at the start of a credit sequence. But, yeah, I didn't even yeah. notice that. I'm yeah. curious. And, why? That, and that the infant plays sort of quite a predominant role in a horror movie in a slightly uncomfortable way, I guess mm. we could say. You, well, uh, shall I weigh in my mixed feelings then about sure. this? Yeah, I, I yeah. actually had a lot of respect for I thought this was quite well crafted and I thought at least for the first hour first of all there is not being too sure how it all f- would fit together and then when seeing how it did fit together being quite fascinated by how it sort of um, would then unfold and there was a real tension here there was a real sense of dread as this film built up for the first hour and the whole time being very anxious about yeah this is where it's going I, I can see where it's going and then it goes exactly where I thought it was going to go and it lost me at that point because there was no surprise and it's just incredibly grim and I don't know if there's any subtext in there to kind of make it worthwhile. The, 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 the sort of the last half hour, it's just all the grimness that is built and built and built just plays out before you. Mm. And I, I ended up feeling really depressed by this film and I don't think it's a bad thing to be depressed by cinema. I mean, I've, there's plenty of great films that upset you or, or depress mm. you but I, I like that when I feel like some point has been made this sort of feels like a weird roller coaster that just completely denies any 
real ultimate enjoyment. But then I sort of step back and I'm worried, have I just become a sort of moral hysterical person? Like, is this how I would have maybe reacted to Wolf Creek back in the day? But I think yeah. Wolf Creek's probably more inventive and, and surprising. And, yet, yeah, I still sort of admire how this film was constructed. But, it, yeah, that last half hour lost me because it was just so unbearably grim. I think it only... Its strength was probably in the way that um, the characters... I guess in terms of their reactions, like they didn't play up hero roles. They play sort of more of the way that I think people would actually react and sometimes that people would maybe even react against type in in t- in situations of such stress. I don't want to give away anything but by I guess saying that. That's what I didn't find that and, interesting. Yeah, so it it played out exactly as I thought it would. Except well, well, there is one character who's very much presented as possibly a more noble character who does something very... Yeah. I, um, what's the word? Unnoble? Disnoble? Ignoble. Mm. You. <laughs> but but I, I, I didn't actually yeah. buy that either. When when that one character did that certain thing, I, I didn't believe that in that situation he would have done that. And I think mm. my other complaint is there is, a, there is a very young child in this film who keeps getting dragged back into the narrative after you think we've finished with that. And it started to feel ever so slightly exploitive. Um, Because it doesn't very brave. The film does some pretty brave and confronting things with that. Absolutely. But they keep keep resurrecting. (laughs) I mean, I've just seen this film thousands of times before. Like, if we let go of the it's uniquely Australian, like talking about us you know like this this i mean i'm i'm susceptible to it as well but there's like talking about australian cinema like we're going for the clumsy kid on sports day like if we let go on if we let go of the australianness of this film there is 99.9% that would not stay in my memory i've seen it so many times the stuff with the kid the messing with the narrative i've seen it it, it was just so banal and so and i found most of the performances were really trite the, yeah the only thing yeah. that stays with me in the in this film the only thing of any interest the only thing i really have anything of worth to talk about is um aaron pedersen i think he was a, a glowing beacon of, of something interesting <laughs> and a really really ordinary film i know um horror critics specifically who have loved this film so obviously i'm t- there's a degree of taste at work here um it didn't work for me i know people who are really into horror that love it like film of the year kind of level stuff that really really connected wow. with it that's, but pedersen i i think I, and i i would have liked more about um that he's done some really interesting interviews where he's talked about why he chose this role and i think it's a really interesting role for him to have decided to do and i would have liked the film to have dealt a bit more explicitly with that and i think the most passionate that i got about anything to do with this movie was um, look, it's not my favourite website anyway, but the RogerEbert.com mm. uh, just oh, some right. some numpty American <laughs> critic refers to Aaron Pedersen as white trash. Oh, it's like, wow. dude, just just Google like every other yeah, film critic. Jesus. Just do it. Just read the first sentence on the guy's <laughs> Wikipedia page <laughs> before you give it one star and tell us that it's that got nothing al- of interest. That was like, hilarious, actually. That just, you <laughs> found that. Like, no, it was curious that the aggressors in that are an indigenous man and then a very lower class white guy and obviously there was some kind of meaning behind that but I couldn't quite figure out what they wanted to say other than just create kind of it it felt a bit hills have eyes sort of all deliverance that kind of panic for the middle classes that these lower classes really are out to get us and I don't I don't know, in this day and age, that's the, that's the coolest thing to be doing in cinema we, right now. We used mm. to do... Uh, we don't do it anymore. It's a real bugbear of mine with, with Australian horror film is that we really... It's a space where we could really be tackling this stuff. Um, oh, my you horror know, is race. such a great genre for this yeah, stuff. And, yeah, and, and look, there's, look so much, there's so much going on in <laughs> yeah. this country that horror could be really getting its teeth into, yet we get these kind of 
ambitious posturing, I'm going to use it as a calling card for Hollywood. And I'm not saying that that's what this film is, but, you know, I mean, certainly we, we have talked about films that fall into that category on this film, uh, in, on this show. Um, and it's like, just do it. We used to do it in 1988. We had a couple of really, not necessarily, you know, big budget or even particularly good films, but, you know, Australian horror films talking about race relations. Um, we've done it before. Like, let's let's do it. Yeah. Like, the way I felt that this film really pussied out. It was like, frustrating because it sets you up to expect it might the go title, there. The title really, is yeah. so loaded. Like, this, yes. you know, I mean, it, I thought that that's where it was going. I thought the casting of Pedersen, it's, I thought that reference, I thought this is going to be like a colonial boot in the guts and that's what I wanted it to be and it just felt that, that, that you mentioned that about the that it was meant to be the area where there were, had been um, some and this conflict. is told as a campfire tale as well yeah, as if yeah. to put it into the area of the mythical and the archetypal and then it just yeah. abandoned and it. And then it goes, well I watched the film um, a little while ago um, and I forgot that so mm. that's how much it resonated yeah, with me it, it just that campfire tale just yeah, and I, went off with the mm. smoke and I just correct me in case I, I fell asleep and dreamt the sequence, but there is a bit that hints at something supernatural going on, isn't there? Oh. Uh, there, there is a strange figure that appears in the background of a shot that yeah, we don't exactly know what that figure is and what it's doing. This is perhaps that little infant. Um, I think that might be that little infant, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if that, if, if, <laughs> if that figure, though, could have moved and because the infant we're talking about was in a state where I don't think it could have moved in the way that we saw it in the background of that it shot. It was a little toddler. Yeah, true. Yeah, I think that was the intention. It wasn't supernatural. I oh, think that God, was the intention. Okay, yes. yeah, 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 maybe, yeah. Maybe you should ignore everything I've said about this film because I totally missed that. That, that was a strange yeah. moment. It was a haunting moment. It was very haunting. I think yeah. that was one of the, it was the, one of the bits I really compelling liked. imagery of it. I, um, it didn't, I didn't feel that strongly against it. I actually thought that it, it was doing, it was going somewhere interesting for the first half but then mm. it got very formulaic in the the uh, third act and just seemed to go along a line that we've seen so many times before and I, I was I hoping was for so depressed more. by this film it just made me feel gross and, really? and I don't yeah. think there was anything about it that justified leaving me feel so feeling so bleak but like yeah. I said before I'm worried that's me am I getting old and conservative because you know I, I do think things like Wolf Creek are amazing I mean what, 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 why does Wolf Creek say work and not this because Wolf Creek has politics and I think this film yep. almost had politics and pussied out because it just wanted to be a fun midnight movie. That's what I think. Mm. I'm going to go with that then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I still, mm. I still liked it for mm. to a point. I think, mm. I think there but, were ideas yeah. here, but they, but somebody pulled back on the ideas. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it could, it didn't need to make it explicit, but it needed. I, it just felt like it had such yeah. potential. I also yeah. had a sense of maybe a scene or two perhaps being on the cutting room floor. There was just uh, one particular. It would have been an unpleasant scene, but there was just. Uh, I don't even want to talk about what it was, but I just had this sense of against a bit of restraint when perhaps the film could have been even more unpleasant Thomas actually yeah, but yeah, it would I mean, have worked more because it, yeah. it didn't show something that um, wouldn't necessarily endorse showing in any given film but it just somehow it seemed wrong that we wound up in this particular place I'll let that go I know exactly yeah. what you mean and thank mm. god we didn't have to see that but mm. it did feel like it an absence at yeah, the same time did. so mm. Yeah, I don't know. I've still got very mixed feelings about this hey, film. Uh, we've been talking about Killing Ground here on Plato's Cave. This is 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. 
You are listening to Plato's Cave. Later on the show, we will be talking about the lost city of Zed and Logan Lucky. But first, we're going to have to do that thing that we, we don't always feel great about doing, but feel that we should, and that's acknowledge the passing of another very significant filmmaker. Gee, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about George A. Romero, and now one of the other great horror icon filmmakers has recently died. That would be Tobe Hooper. I, I feel like I jinxed it because I said, you know, if, if Romero can go, that means the rest of them can. You did say that. And, um, and hence I have put the nail in the coffin of some of America's <laughs> greatest filmmakers of the 20th century. At least you didn't do an impersonation of him well, and I kill him, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. In fact, I, I have very rarely heard um, Toby Hooper speak. He's one of those filmmakers that have has kept to the background and I would argue is probably as important as George A. Romero in terms Texas, of the horror movie. Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre is unparalleled both mm. in effect and in importance. I, I yeah. It's just an extraordinary film. I've just done a huge amount of work on it, so I'm sort of neck deep in that movie. Well, it's and I, I, it's it's up there with me, w- with Psycho. Like, I, I cannot... Every time I watch it, I see something new. Mm. I think it's incredible. Mm. It's and, sort of the yeah. template for the film we just discussed, in fact, Killing Ground, regardless yeah. of what we thought about that, that kind of very raw, gritty, uh, uh, grim horror aesthetic was, was Hooper was the one who kind of defined that and um, was such a slap in the face when that film came out. And I remember even when I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre you know I hardly was new to the horror scene when I first saw that film I saw it a bit later but it's such a confronting amazing film well he's kind of even more much much more so than Killing Ground that we've seen he's his creation of mood and just uh, the density of the films through mood and atmospherics is Mm. totally unparalleled the wonderful Dean Brandom a Melbourne film critic and historian said yesterday and I just thought this was so beautiful he said aside from being aside from Texas Chainsaw Massacre being such an important film in terms of its frights and how it constructs its scares. It's probably like it's one of the best films about the kind of the ickiness of summer. Mm. The that that yucky, sticky, horrible Hot AM it's radio. It's just the perfect bad summer film. Like yeah. it just captures that so well. That sweaty, stinky yuck. And then he did a couple of uh, film called Eaten Alive, which um, has a lot of people have forgotten. Which is another incredible mood piece. And Funhouse. I love Funhouse. Funhouse fun and Fun-house. Spontaneous Combustion. Yes, two of my favourite. Spontaneous films. Combustion. I forgot about yeah, that really one. Good. And I've got it. Yes, they're, they're, they're the two that I'll be mm. rewatching actually is um, Funhouse and Spontaneous Combustion. So, yes, excellent filmmaker, R.I.P. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The Lost City of Zed is the latest film by the acclaimed American writer-director James Gray. After his 2013 film The Immigrant, this is Gray's second period film. This time it is based on a true story of English explorer Percy Fawcett's attempt to find a lost city in the Amazon during the beginning of the last century. Adapted from the non-fiction 2009 book by journalist David Gran, The Lost City of Zed portrays a number of Fawcett's journeys into the Amazon and his growing obsession with finding a lost ancient city. As well as depicting the various hardships faced by explorers 100 years ago, Gray also explores issues at the time relating to race, gender and class, not to mention the many ways of the, the my, my co-hosts are rolling their eyes... <laughs> How well he explores those issues are up for debate, but he does. <laughs> they, they, are, they are there. Calm down, people. Um, 
Also, the way, it also looks at the way Fawcett's encounters with several tribes in the Amazon begin to change and shift attitudes that colonial countries like England had towards supposedly uncivilised cultures. Charlie Hunan... Oh, am I saying that right? Hunam plays Fawcett? Hunam. Hunam. Hunam, yes. Charlie Hunam, who I think is best known from television. Sons, Sons of, Anarchy. of Anarchy, yeah, yes. Which I'm not, I'm not across that. Uh, he's an English actor, though. He plays Fawcett. Robert Patterson is in there as Henry Coston, who was one of Fawcett's most loyal exploration companions. And Sienna Miller plays Nina, Fawcett's wife, who had to deal with the constant frustration of being left behind. Um, I've, I've lost count of the number of eye rolls I saw when I just read out the, <laughs> what I thought was a neutral description of the film we're going to discuss. Do tell me, why why, why isn't this film of favour? Well, Robert Pat- Pattinson should yep. have been in the lead. I could run barefoot through that man's beard in this film. It's so <laughs> beautiful. It was absolutely the only thing that kept me watching was his glorious man beard. Oh. You, you guys probably aren't familiar with... I don't know too many current listeners to Players Cave are familiar with this, but back when I was doing reviews for The Breakfasters uh, here on Triple R, a long-running joke was I was a big defender of Robert Pattinson. I, I loved him from day one, and I always said... You know, I know these Twilight films aren't great, but I think he's got the goods to be a great actor. Let's let's watch. Certainly and I, I have been vindicated on so many occasions. Rather than Vin Diesel. Which is Vin Diesel, who, is, a, who is an actor I refuse to watch. <laughs> or champion. Yeah, yeah, not a Vin Diesel fan. And but, he doesn't have a beard. But Robert no, Pattinson, I, I much think... much hair at all, really. I would even argue you wouldn't know that, that was the actor in this film unless his name was there on the credits. He, I, think, looks, I think it goes to show that just he can, he can play uh, a supporting role and properly play a supporting role. He doesn't have to take over the lead. Um, he can step up to the lead when he wants to and um, he's just I think that's the stripes that shows a great actor really does um, whereas with with Charlie Hunnam, Hunnam now I'm not going to be able to say his name I just feel like the course he's, of Cordwell he's, yeah. <laughs> the curse even of Cordwell I think I just mispronounced my own name that's a first <laughs> Sorry, Emma, I'll, I'll shut up. You were making a point. I loved it. Well, I'm making a point that um, Charlie Hunnam, he he can act, but he just seems to be acting the one note all the time. Um, there was something about this film that, oh, God, I don't even know where to start with this film. It's so where vanilla. Do I, where do I start? It's yeah. It's so it was, vanilla. It was, I don't know. I think that the narrative could have worked better in a book, but it seemed to be it went from Amazon film back to, I don't know, a whole lot of, you know, old white English guys yelling about Amazon tribes in a committee to World War One Western Front, back to the Amazon. I don't think that they really... I don't think they picked the narrative pace very well or even... It had that, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened kind of storytelling rhythm to it. Yeah. Look, I thought it looked beautiful, but I just... I just found the whole, you know, these woke colonials talking about, you know, <laughs> the the noble savage. All I could think of watching this film was how much I loved Embrace of the Serpent last year. I knew you were going to say that. Um, I, was I was watching just, this saying Alex is going to bring up Embrace like, of the I Serpent. This film doesn't stand a chance. I can't watch this story anymore. It's 2017. I can't have these deer hunting co- colonial pricks 
being the hero anymore. <laughs> like I've seen it. It's all we've had in cinema. You know, last year we had this amazing film or the year before, you know, like we got the story year, from the year. other side. You know, that's what Embrace the... Mm. How you can make a film like this after Embrace of the Serpent, I don't know. I Yeah, no, I think just, you're being unfair. I don't think this film oh. is the colonial voice at all. I think if anything, it's showing us how pompous the, the English were and how delusional they were about the glory of ex, of these big explorations. And I think uh, Percy Fawcett is shown to be a really sort of flawed and old-fashioned and backward-thinking man, but he's, his views do change throughout the film. And those yelling matches you're talking about are him as the sole voice in these mm. societies saying these people are not second class. You know, these there people was... aren't savages. That They've actually got these sophisticated um, farming methods. And, you know, this is a whole civilization we have, we have yet to recognise we and were, respect. We were, we were told that. We didn't see it. We were told it by the white... I mean, that was the debate. No, it was we, a debate we, we, between white people. We saw him people. seeing their farming. I mean, it wasn't yeah, explicitly exactly in dialogue. We, we saw it through his eyes. We saw so the, the conflict of him coming just, back to England. Look, I think I had a real... Bu- I, d- yeah. I have to emphasise, this film does look beautiful, but the... the um, it was shot on 35 mil, wasn't it? This performative, like, feminist wokeness, like the Sienna Miller character. Is that her name? Sienna Miller. Sienna yeah. Miller, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like this sort of, you know, I'm a woman and I want to come with you. It's like, oh, my God. Like, it's like this sort of boys' own adventure tarted up for I a think kind they, of Hillary Clinton I audience. think they had to give her that. I don't know whether that was actually um, the, the case oh. in real life. I think that they felt... It was. They it, felt, was. it was? Yeah. Yep. They, but the I, way that it was... Look, maybe it was based in fact, but yeah, the way I'm, that I'm it not was... Saying the way that yeah. it was staged was so neoliberal. Liberal and it's like Brad Pitt was an executive producer and it's like, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Brad Pitt was meant to play the role. It was his politics all over it. Well, when when, when the film was first commissioned, it was his company who got hold of the script and approached Grey. Plan Plan B, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Pitt was going to play the lead role and then I'm trying to think what happened. Benedict Cumberbatch was the next one. Yeah, dragged on too long and Pitt realised he was getting too old and they needed an English person to play the role and Benedict Cumberbatch passed because he just said that sounds way too gruelling. Well, they did did actually film it in Colombia and in the the jungle and I'm sure there were, you know, amazing production stories that would have come out of that um, but there were a few things I, I don't know one thing I had to question and you know it's a bit more of a factual thing but it, I couldn't help but wonder if those Amazonian tribes that supposedly didn't see anyone what, how they could speak Spanish would they have been able to speak Spanish I don't know I haven't read the book apparently the book is amazing I'm reading it right now. Yeah, I've heard that the book is really solid. I could imagine um, that... The film is heavily, heavily, heavily condensed. I mean, I think the the real Fawcett um, went in there about seven or eight times. The film kind of condenses all those experiences into three trips. I mean, everything we see in the film is kind of more or less a condensed version of things that 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 happen but yeah it's it's a massive condensing of of a huge sprawling uh story yeah. and, and the, the book goes off into all sorts of tangents about what other explorers are doing at the time in the various I politics think, of the era i don't think it was a good adaptation i think that the wrong things were chosen to be put on the screen here they probably had um too much i mean you'll probably be able to tell after you read the book you'll be able to make a decision on that but regardless it should stand on its own so you know if you don't like it it just doesn't (laughs) i don't think it really stands on its own i mean it was it was pleasant enough to watch but even as even as a pretty good looking film i was surprised i found afterwards that it was um shot on 35 mil and i thought that would be something that i would notice more I look. I really dug it. I um. I thought it was sort of the antithesis. 
<laughs> antithesis of the grand explorer film. Like I think it, it, and maybe that was your problem with it. It was working too hard to undermine this this, this genre, and it felt a bit try hard um, by comparison. But um, I, I I really like the way it kind of was the big grand adventure film without being the big grand adventure film, and it, it wasn't all about heroic deeds. It was very much looking at the politics of the time and the sort of the nitty gritty of what he had to do behind the scenes and in the jungle to survive and, and, and get funding. And I was very moved by the end of it. It did remind me of Embrace of the Serpent, which I think is the superior film, but that doesn't stop me from disliking this how, one. How does it stand mm. compared to the likes of Alan Quartermain and The Lost City of Gold? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Albie Mangles. <laughs> Similar. Well, actually, yeah. the, the book tells tells us that the the Indiana, Indiana Jones novel franchise. So, like, you know, in the '90s, a whole bunch of books about Indiana Jones, and one of those is Indiana Jones finding Percy <laughs> yeah. Forsett. Oh, really? So, um, he, he's sort of. I mean, he's a he, he's a figure that Arthur Conan Doyle was inspired by with his yes. writing, and, yeah. and and I believe there's been articles since that have come out that have said this book and this film. Even though I think they're both critical of him in many ways, there are articles that have come out since that have said that this film and book still glorify him too much, that he is yeah. a highly flawed person. I, I, I don't have a lot of interest in these exploration films, so I was quite surprised by how fascinating, fascinated I was by, by this film. And I was really moved by the end. The, the ending I found pretty yeah. profound and powerful. I, um, it was interesting, his motivation too, because he actually he was motivated by trying to overcome a bad family rep- reputation. It wasn't that he was um, necessarily had grand ambitions to be an explorer. Is that that was that is does that come out in the yeah? I think the, the, I mean, yeah, the suggestion yeah. I got is it was purely sort of financial and status, and then there was yeah. a part of him that I think actually started to quite believe in in the mission of. Um, d- d- discovering a people who had been written off by the West. And then the book goes into far more detail about the horrific things that have been done to the, the, the tribal Indians in the Amazon and ultimately became this absolute fixation and this obsession to find this city. And I'm six, I could have done with more pages. of that the, in the film. Oh, because none of that really comes through in the film. I, can, yeah. I, 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 I got I, it. I, yeah. I, 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 I felt it from the film. Nah. Yeah. Gee, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see if I read that book now, I'd just be like, James Gray, he wrote it as well, so we can uh, wrote it for the script. So we can blame it on him. I'm sure I'd see so much more that could be put in there. It's my least favourite James Gray film, for sure. Okay. But I still really don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I liked it a lot more than you two anyway. We're talking about The Lost City of Z. It's only screening at Cinema Nova. Um, but I don't know if you tend to like my opinion <laughs> more than the others. Go and check it out. I'm sure somebody does. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Alex, Emma and Cerise. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Logan Lucky is the first feature film to be directed by Steven Soderbergh in the last four years after he announced he was going to retire from directing feature films in 2013. Although we should say he has since remained active in other roles in the industry, including directing for television. So Soderbergh has described Logan Lucky as an anti-glam version of his Ocean's Eleven films, as it is a heist film about blue-collar workers in southern USA planning to rob a speed during a major NASCAR event. The main three would-be thieves are the Logan siblings, 
Jimmy, Clyde and Melly, played respectively by Channing Tatum, Adam Driver and Riley Keough. Their main collaborator is an incarcerated explosives expert named Joe Bang, who is played by Daniel Craig, who is supposedly so against type that the joke with the film's promotion has been to credit him as a new actor. Other key cast members include Seth MacFarlane, Katie Holmes, Hilary Swank and Katie Waterston. So, mm. what do we think? We're we excited that Steven Soderbergh is back directing On films? Paper, that's such a good cast. Yeah. Mm. It's fun cast. <laughs> yeah. Fun cast. That, 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 that's cast. A foreshadowing your yeah. end result to the film. I was supremely underwhelmed by this. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, I don't Are you think, an Oceans fan? You know, I've never watched them. Okay, maybe mm. you shouldn't watch them then. Are, are you, Emma? Um, I, 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 yes. Mm. I, I, as in pure fluff entertainment, I find them quite enjoyable. They're the sort of thing that, oh, it's Saturday afternoon and I'm doing the dishes and there it is. Yeah, yeah, let's watch that. Um, but, um, yeah, but apart from that, I've taken it away from Cerise. So go no, ahead, no, Cerise. I'm curious. To, uh, and <laughs> I, I just wonder if everyone had, if this was a widespread thing, this feeling of, oh, good, Soderbergh's back. Oh, the film's shit. Uh, you know, it, it, I don't even know why he left cinema. Uh, was this supposed to be his declaration of the death of this platform, Wasn't only he, to then make a TV yeah, film it, that was fabulous about Liberace, yeah, yes, which is really wonderful. What, I love that. That, that Liberace film, Behind the Candelabra, yeah. is one of the best things he's done. Yeah. 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 Side Effects was one of the worst things he's done. Yes. Oh, so that was, was the other just, last. Probably just yeah. embarrassment from that. Yeah, yeah well, this was, was thought, appalling. This has such a great cast, but everything's off. The timing is off. No one's got a rapport that really fizzes. It just, it's just inert. It, it's not funny. Barring one or two moments, I thought it, yeah, but just really, the dialogue doesn't punch. It just, I felt nothing for really any of the characters, and the heist took so long to get to that uh, I wasn't terribly invested in it. And I thought it's very easy to make fun of rednecks, isn't it? And that's what the film's, uh, that's my, that was my takeaway message. It's yeah, very easy to make fun of rednecks. I mean, I. I think the nature of a heist film is we take our time to get to there. Like, it's about the planning. And, and I think this film follows the heist formula fairly well in that we see the planning and there's a lot of things that they do that we don't make sense of the time and it's not until the heist happens it all falls into place. Yeah, that's fine. But even the, to get to the planning took a long time. That's true. And then the film does go on for an awfully long time after the heist, which actually yes. I found a little bit frustrating. Um, that seems to be happening a lot. I mean, certainly Killing Ground for me went on way too long after what I thought the climax was. Mm. Last week I said the same about a trip to Spain. It just went on far too long. Um, Atomic Blonde had the same issue. This sort of not ending the film where it should be ending has been happening a lot lately. Well, to me, this film just didn't have a rhythm. It just didn't ever strike a... a, get get a real flow going. And uh, so I... I I mean, I didn't hate it. I was Mm. just... I just found it a very ho-hum experience. And even the novelty of seeing Daniel Craig, introducing Daniel Craig, (laughs) uh, with this this blonde buzz cut and... um, some dodgy prison tats and a peculiar accent that I would be quite <laughs> unplaceable, really. Uh, now that kept me in the film for a little while, but uh, yeah, it, it didn't have enough for me at all. So I just thought this is terribly underwhelming. It felt like it, it's a kind of, in the same way that the Oceans films, it, it was just exactly, you know, a continuation of the Oceans film, that the, the actors are playing, you know, having, it's all about having a bit of fun. Oh, my God, look at Seth MacFarlane. We would never have recognised him. Yeah. He was terrible. Was actually. really terrible. But, um, you know, this... I just breathe a sigh of relief that he wasn't too Seth MacFarlane-y. He's horrid. Yes. Yeah, he's I mean... He's a horrid human being. <laughs> Maybe he's nice in person, but what he represents is nothing good. Um, <laughs> you would have loved him in this film. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> At least 
<laughs> well, he, he plays a character you've been to despise. You well, are he's well cast, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah but he meant his mum wasn't that satisfying. He was just annoying without, mm. you know, he's just a bit, bit of a, a cookie-cutter villain. And, uh, yeah, I didn't actually twig that's who it was until I saw the closing credits and then thought, huh. I kind of wonder why Soderbergh decided to come back. It feels like um, maybe because he cashed in so well with the Oceans films that this is um, he needed, I don't know, to pay the rent and this was a good way to do it. Or it could have also been... I had the feeling it... it, I don't know whether it was completely successful, but it was a little bit of a, a, a reaction against the Trump presidency in the way that a sort of a hell or high water was, you know, it's sort of giving the voice to, you know, the West Virginians and uh, uh, what they've gone through, this sort of hard luck, you know, uh, this this hard luck belt of uh, mining belt of America, and uh, therefore what they're forced to do, and we're meant to we're all about rooting for them. And this this smart heist, I mean, there were a hell of a lot of holes in there that they could have uh, that the script kind of uh, could have fallen through. But um, it was you know about that playfulness and things coming together and seeing the little man rise above i don't get the anti glam thing because the the film just looks glam you know he just makes it's, it in a glam very, way it's very slick isn't it it's very yeah. slick it probably could have done with a bit more nascar to be totally honest and mm-hmm. given it a bit more of the the petrol you know the fumes and the the dirtiness of the racetrack um but yeah it just felt like a straight another oceans film to me rather than feeling like a film that I think was making fun of Southern Americans. It feels like a film made by somebody who's trying to endear himself to them but he's so from the outside that he's still That's stuck what I with caricatures. That's yeah. what I think. I think he's like, you know, you know it, you've been treated badly and you need your, your voice and I'm going to be this voice through this. Because they're, they're, they're all very hard done characters. Yeah. Good, good people who bad things have happened to them often because of the man or corporations who are sort of getting revenge. Look, this is very much what I refer to as Soderbergh in his Coen Brothers light mode. And he, yeah. he does this a bit. I, I don't quite get the love with Steven Soderbergh. I like a number of his films, but overall I find he's a very patchy filmmaker. And because totally. he's got such a big output, a lot of his films feel a bit rushed and undeveloped. I mean, Side Effects is a blatant example of a film that felt so hurried. Um, I feel like I need to go back and watch Sex, Lies and Videotape that, You know again. what? That's an amazing film. That's one of those films I watch every year or two, and it's still, Cause it's still it's incredible. it's been years for me, and I'd be really interested to see if it holds up. because. Alex and um, I many of his films do. About. Many of his films do. I mean, I think yeah. Out of Sight is still a brilliant film. Yeah, that's really solid. Yes. That's the really height solid. of him doing the mainstream yeah. thing, I think. But I mean, the Ocean's Eleven fantastic. films I find a bit smug and it's too much of a, well, they're having a good time on the screen. You know, yeah. it's just a bit of fun, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's all a bit too cool for school and everything. But, you know, easy, easy watch. Nothing that you just, nothing to write home about or talk for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're patting this one out. Well, where is this Magic Mike, right? <laughs> Magic Mike was fantastic. Was yeah. Actually, I did enjoy Magic Mike, yes. And this is a return of Channing Tatum, so, you know. Who obviously, I mean, these actors obviously like working with, with Soderbergh. And I've got to say, actually, I thought the casting of Adam Driver and Channing Tatum as brothers, you on paper it doesn't look good, but you see them side by side, and I, I really bought it. And and I think Adam Driver was one of the shining lights of the film as well. He just seems to be I've able to... Man crushing them driving, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think totally understand that. Is now. <laughs> I, Adam I totally Driver and Robert that. Pattinson in the film together, and I'll be happy. Yeah. And oh, someone make that happen. Oh. Sorry, I'll just calm down now. Um, 
yeah, it's it's a funny. F- I really enjoyed watching this film. I, I mean, I was entertained throughout. But um, I, I, it was one of those because I knew I was going to talk about it on the show. I sort of had my notepad out, desperately trying to write something down of substance. Yes, and I, I had nothing. And then the film finished, and straight away it started vanishing from my memory. It it did try to pick up. It, it kind of tried to hit on every. Um, Killbilly uh, tr- uh, kind of cliche, like even the the daughter in it was the beauty a pageant, beauty queen. <laughs> the, she was a Jean uh, Benet, oh. you know, uh, and she was good. That little kid in it, but um, mm. it kind of, and even the use of John Denver's, you know, country roads. I mean, anytime the just I hear West Virginia, I sing that song. So you know, it just felt so so obvious to put it in there. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, look, you know, um, are people liking this film? I don't know. I haven't actually read any reviews other than or any heard any buzz about it. I was the much. only person in the cinema last <laughs> night. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just, so, it was a very yeah. empty cinema that I went to last night, so I'm thinking that um, maybe... It has been out for a bit longer than the other films we talked about. It tonight, has, so, yeah. but it's it's only a couple mm. of weeks. you think it would have more legs. Maybe a lot of people have had enough of Steven Soderbergh's ocean stint. <laughs> uh, I think it's just not remarkable enough. I yeah. think it's perfectly fine, but... But yeah, you yeah, know, we've just wasted a segment on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It was my idea, this one, so I'll take the bullet. Um, let's wrap this up. We might let Jason start on time for once. Killing Ground is on limited release, courtesy of Mushroom Pictures. The Lost City of Zed is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Studio Canal. Logan Lucky is on general release, courtesy of Roadshow Films. You have been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen, Nicholas, and Emma Westwood on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is produced and edited by Faith Everard. Hey, look, if you do want to get in touch with us, go along to our page on, on um, the Triple R website. Uh, our links to our Facebook page and Twitter account are there. Uh, you can also email us at platoskfilm at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.